First Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says this. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is in Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening to you with my, my, with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. Well, it's interesting, when it comes to conflict in the animal world, the way to kind of get ahead is to be bigger, stronger, and louder. For example, I was looking up some information, helpful information, especially for some friends of mine that I talked to who saw a black bear not, while, not, not too long ago. So if you encounter a black bear, they say the, the way that you are supposed to approach it is to kind of get loud, get kind of obnoxious, make, you know, kind of wave your arms, make noise, be kind of aggressive, you know, because this, you know, black bears aren't that big. And so if you kind of scare them a little bit, they're going to back off. Don't do that with a grizzly bear. Grizzly bears, on the other hand, if you start being aggressive towards them, they're just going to eat you. Because they know they're like, you know, how, how tall do they stand? They stand like nine feet tall. They know you're no threat to them. So in the animal world, it's like you got to get bigger, stronger, louder to come out on top. They say the way that if you're in a safari in Africa and, and there's a lion that's, that's about to approach you, the way that you approach them is you look them dead in the eye. You never turn your back on them. You look at them dead in the eye to show them you're an equal, you're a threat to them so that they don't attack you. So I have a dog, a small dog. Uh, she's like 40, 45 pounds, Ruby. Many of you have met her before. Um, she's kind of a scrappy dog. She uh, is a hunter. She likes to hunt rodents in the yard. Um, kind of scrappy, kind of tough dog. My parents' dog, his name is Queenie. She's a little miniature poodle about this big. Weighs maybe 10 or 15 pounds. Uh, she's got lots of health issues. Uh, she's got these tumors. Some of her teeth are missing. Um, she's really kind of not in great shape. But the thing that is interesting is 
when uh, we bring Ruby to my parents' house, she's terrified of Queenie. This big dog is terrified of this little dog because Queenie goes up and goes, burp, 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 burp. And, and Ruby really, if, if Queenie is there, Ruby won't even enter into the doors of my parents' house. She's so terrified of her. For whatever reason, she's intimidated by her bark. It's not just with animals, it's also with people. You know, people have this idea that in order to win in a conflict, you have to kind of get bigger and get louder and get stronger. Uh, the other day, I was uh, pulling off a side street onto a main street, and I pulled out, and as I pulled out, uh, a few seconds after pulling out, I look in my rearview mirror, and there's this car that's just right on my tail. And I'm thinking, did, was it too close? And I look at my speed, I'm going, you know, a pretty decent speed, and this guy had to be going like 20, 25 miles over the speed limit. So I'm like... All right, it is what it is. So we go to the, the next light, and I'm turning right, he's turning left, and he comes up right next to me, rolls his window down, and he, you know, he's got this big truck, and he just starts swearing and giving me the finger and all this stuff, and I'm like, you know, I just look the other way. And, you know, it's like the way to win is to get bigger, get stronger, get louder, uh, we see also this in, in military warfare and military strategy. In 1996, there were two military strategists, uh, Harlan Ullman and James Wade. They started advocating a more focused approach to war. Uh, it was called shock and awe. They argued for engaging the enemy with an overwhelming show of force. Uh, they were, their, their, their goal was to destroy the adversary's will to resist before, during, and after the battle. It was also known as rapid dominance. It's defined as a military doctrine based on the use of overwhelming power, dominant battlefield awareness, dominant maneuvers, and spectacular displays of force to paralyze the enemy's perception of the battlefield and destroy its will of fight. The goal is to render your opponent impotent by superior technology, precision engagement, and information dominance. Shortly before the Iraq War, Ullman, uh, the first Iraq War, Ullman described what would, uh, how it would kind of play out in the shock, shock and awe approach. He says, you're sitting in Baghdad, and all of a sudden you're the general, and 30 of your division headquarters have been wiped out. You also take the city down. By that I mean you get rid of their power, water. In two, three, four, five days, they are physically, emotionally, and psychologically exhausted. So we have this idea that the way to win any conflicts is to get bigger, get stronger, get louder. Uh, another piece of evidence kind of in this regard. Um, evidence show, research shows that taller people tend to be more successful in life. Uh, they did, one uh, group of researchers did the study on people who were 5'5 five five and people who were 6 foot. And they found on average the person that was 6 foot earned $166,000 more over the course of their career than a person who was 5'5". Five five. Uh, they also found that many CEOs of Fortune 500 companies tend to be taller. Uh, the author of this particular study said this, the process of literally looking down on others may cause one to be more confident. Similarly, having others looking up to us may instill in tall people more self-confidence. So why do I tell you all these things? I tell you all these things to show that kind of from a worldly perspective, to get ahead, you have to be bigger, stronger, louder. 
This kind of idea has been around since the beginning of creation, and it was certainly around in Paul's day. And in this uh, letter that we're looking at today in chapter 10, we see that there are certain opponents who are attacking Paul. And the reason they're attacking Paul is because Paul had written this letter to them, uh, may have been what we would call 3 Corinthians. It was a 3 Corinthian letter. Uh, most likely it was between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Um, we don't know that for sure, but the evidence points to the fact that there was this third letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. We don't have a record of that today. But this letter was described by Paul as being a sorrowful letter. It brought tears to the, to the eyes of those who hear it. It heard it. Um, it was a very harsh, kind of pointed letter calling the Corinthians to, to change their ways, to repent of the things that they had been doing. And so it's really harsh. You know, it's not mean-spirited or anything like that, but it's harsh, it's pointed. So Paul had sent that letter, but then he goes and he visits the Corinthians, and he's real kind, real nice, real soft-spoken. And so Paul's critics are, are saying, so when you're away, you write these really pointed things to us, calling us to repent, but when you're with us, you're a softy. You're a pushover. You just mild. You're meek. You don't have this great oratory. You don't have this great presence about you. You only have it when you write your letters. So in essence, they're accusing him of not having integrity or maybe even being afraid to back up the message that he'd written in the letters. So Paul's going to answer that charge, and he's going to answer that by kind of explaining three things to the Corinthians. Um, and as we kind of look at these three things, I think we can learn, first of all, kind of how to deal with conflict, but more specifically, how do we deal with conflict which is, which is caused by the work of the enemy? How do we deal with conflict that's caused by the work of the enemy, whether it's in other people's lives or in our own lives? So let's see how Paul responds to this charge of you don't have integrity, you're kind of a phony, you don't have courage. First he says, it's not about me. He says, it's not about me. Paul is secure in who he is. He says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us, to reach even to you. See, the Corinthians want him to play the comparison game. They want him to kind of fit into the world system. They want him to prove himself. They want him to prove himself with a powerful presence, with persuasive speech. And Paul says, that's not what I'm about. Of course, he's willing to kind of share his qualifications. We see that in the next chapter, and we've seen throughout the book, he's, he's clear he's going to share his qualifications to show that he is who he says he is. He's not afraid to do that, but he's not going to kind of play the comparison game. He's not going to fit into the world's mode the mold, to kind of communicate his message. He's secure in who he is, and he knows what he's been called to do. He knows he's an apostle of God. He's been called to start churches. He's been called to preach to these early churches and help them with the issues and problems that they've been walking through. So he knows who he is. He knows where he's going, and he's not trying to fit into the world's system. He's secure in who he is. And the thing is, when we're insecure it truly derails our relationships. When we're insecure, it derails the work of God in our life. Because when the voice of insecurity gets louder, the voice of God gets quieter. 
When all we can hear is our insecurity and our inadequacies, we can't hear the voice of God in our life. Imagine if the Apostle Paul was insecure in who he was. Imagine he has these charges that are brought against him. It seemed like all the time people were bringing different charges against him. Maybe he thinks to himself, maybe I'm not called of God. Maybe I'm not really called of God. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm not the right person for the job. Maybe I need to improve myself. Maybe I need to become a better orator. And so maybe he goes to the schools of oratory of the day. Spends all that time trying to become a great orator. Or maybe he thinks to himself, I I don't have a real impressive appearance. I don't have a lot of money. Physically, I'm not that appearance. So he just starts working out. And he starts earning money so he can wear really nice, fine clothes so he can impress people. Imagine, he says, maybe they're right. Maybe I am being a little bit too harsh. Maybe I should just kind of let them do what they want to do and just live and let live. His insecurity would have been driving his behavior rather than the plan of God, but he's secure in who he is. And so he carries out the work of God. See, insecurity causes us to focus only on ourselves and not see what God is calling us to do, and it can destroy relationships. Writer and editor of Desiring God writes this, but in the current American vernacular, what we typically mean by insecure is not just circumstantially induced fear, but a fear so recurrent that we refer to it as a state of being. We talk of uh, being insecure, or we might say so-and-so is an insecure person. And what we mean by insecure is feeling a significant lack of self-confidence or a powerful fear of others' disapproval or rejection or a chronic sense of inferiority. But what are we afraid of? What danger is this kind of insecurity warning us against? It's telling us that our identity is uncertain or threatened. When we're driven by the opinions of men, we cannot do the will of God. So in essence, Paul is saying, I know who I am. I'm not trying to fit into the world system. I don't have to have an impressive appearance. I don't have to have persuasive speech. I'm just trying to do what God has called me to do in each and every situation. If we don't have that mindset, conflict is going to bring about a crisis of insecurity for us. Because no matter what conflict it is, it's going to be attack on ourselves. And we're going to be focused only on our own inadequacies and how another person makes us feel rather than doing what God has called us to do. So Paul says, it's, it's not about me. He's secure in who he is. The second thing he shows us is it's not personal. Uh, Paul is not fighting primarily against his opponents, but against the work of the enemy being carried out through his opponents. In other words, it's not strictly about his opponents, it's about the enemy who is winning through his opponents, that there is a spiritual batter, battle that's going on through these opponents. And Paul gives this helpful illustration of siege warfare. He talks about uh, the weapons of warfare not being of the flesh, but having the divine power to destroy strongholds. He says the power of God has, is, is the power of, to destroy strongholds. What is a stronghold? People have defined strongholds different way, but I define a stronghold as a place in a person's life where the enemy is in control. Stronghold is a place where the enemy is in control of your life. One author puts it this way. Here's the picture. 
The Christian wearing his spiritual armor and bearing his spiritual weapons sets out to conquer the world for Christ, but he soon finds obstacles. The enemy has erected strongly fortified garrisons to resist the truth and thwart God's plan of redemption. There is the fortress of human reasoning, reinforced with many subtle arguments and the pretense of logic. There is the castle of passion with the flaming battlements defended by lust, pleasure, and greed. And there is the pinnacle of pride, in which the human heart sits enthroned and levels its thoughts of its own excellence and sufficiency. The enemy is firmly entrenched. These strongholds have been guarded for thousands of years, presenting a great wall of resistance to the truth. None of this deters the Christian warrior, however. Using the weapons of God's choosing, he attacks the strongholds, and by the miraculous power of Christ, the walls are breached and the bastions of sin and error are battered down. The victorious Christian enters the ruins and leads captive as it were, every false theory and every human philosophy that had once proudly asserted its independence from God. So Paul says, the weapons are not of this flesh, but have the power to destroy strongholds. But here's the thing, when we think about a stronghold, when we think about a stronghold, oftentimes strongholds are thought of as being kind of impenetrable. So years ago, when I was a kid, I went to a trip with my parents to Israel. And one of the highlights of my trip was going to a place called Masada. And uh, Masada was a type of stronghold. Uh, it was a small mountain, about 1,300, 1,400 feet high. Um, and King Herod built this, uh, it's kind of like a city fortress on top of this small mountain. And he made it so that in case his subjects rebelled, he could kind of flee to that fortress and no one would be able to overtake it. And this thing was massive. Uh, I remember it was like, it was really hot out and it was like, I think it took about an hour, hour 15 minutes to come down. We didn't even attempt to go up. We took a gondola up. It took us about an hour, hour 15 minutes to go down from this fortress. And let's say you were able to get to the top of this fortress. Uh, Herod had two double lined walls going all the way around this fortress. Also, this was the desert. So uh, I remember as we were walking down this mountain, you could see all around you. There were no buildings or trees or anything like that. You could see everything. So you could see if there was an enemy approaching and you could be ready to attack them. So a fortress, stronghold like that, it's almost impenetrable. The only way that you could overtake a fortress like that is by overwhelming force. Strongholds in our lives are like that sometimes. Sometimes Satan gets such a stronghold in our life that it feels like there's no way that we can get out, and the truth is we can't, except for by the power of God. The overwhelming power of God that can free, our, free us from our strongholds. Paul goes further than that. Paul says, that he destroys any argument or lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And he takes every thought captive to obey Christ. So he's continuing with that stronghold uh, metaphor, and he's talking about taking captive every thought, taking captive every thought to Christ. And I think that we often fail to realize that sinful behavior often starts within the mind. Sinful behavior often starts with sinful or, in, or errant thinking. The external that we see is not the beginning of sin. Jesus is very clear about that. It's not just about the external, it's about what's in the heart. And so sin often begins with false 
or sinful beliefs. For example, let's look at a couple examples. Take lust, for example. Whether that's viewing pornography or wanting material possessions, the fundamental false belief in lust is that God's provision and God's presence are not enough for me, so I need to have fill-in-the-blank. Take lying or dishonesty. The fundamental false belief in that is, I'll never get ahead if I'm honest. If I do things the right way, I'll never get what I truly want. Depression, it can be caused by many things. Sometimes it's physical and, 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 and nothing to do with false beliefs, but oftentimes depression uh, deals with false beliefs and negativity. There's a thinking that only negative things will happen. Insecurity, it's this false belief that I don't measure up and I can never measure up. Sexual immorality, it's this false belief that I need to experience freedom, that if unless I experience freedom in my sexuality outside the bounds that God has ordained, I can't be happy. Greed, fundamental false belief in greed is I need to take care of myself. I need to enjoy myself. I need to look out for number one. Sin begins in the heart. Gossip, final one, the fundamental false belief in gossip is I can get ahead by bringing others down. Sin begins in the heart, and Paul's, Paul wants to state and show the Corinthians that part of his job as a minister of the gospel is to dismantle the schemes of the enemy. To show the Corinthians where the enemy has ensnared them. To show them where their strongholds are so that they can be free from their strongholds. But here's the thing. When we think about strongholds in our life, we need to deal with the strongholds in our lives before we can deal with strongholds in other people's lives. Jesus said to remove the plank from our own eyes before we pick the speck out of our brother or sister's eye. So we need to deal with the strongholds in our lives before we deal with the strongholds in other people's lives. And as believers in Christ, we have a weapon to use in that regard, and that weapon is God's Word. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the, the word of God is a weapon, not to use against others, but to use against the enemy. And so we use that in our own life as we read God's word. That God's word is to challenge us, is to change us, is to shape us, to show us where our strongholds are. And as we look at God's Word, read God's Word, apply God's Word through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be freed from those strongholds. Because God has given us His Holy Spirit to walk in freedom. But also, sometimes other people can see our strongholds better than we can. And in turn, we can see other people's strongholds better than uh, they can. And so we need to be open to correction open to the work of the Holy Spirit. For example, uh, my wife can see the work of the enemy in my life much better than I can. And the reason that that is is because our strongholds often become kind of ways of living and thinking. They just become so natural to us that they just we don't even recognize them as the work of the enemy anymore. I'll admit, I'll be honest, that one of the strongholds in my life is anxiety. And I know the truth, I know God's word, but sometimes my thoughts seem a lot more real than God's word. And sometimes I think that in my mind that I'm doing the right thing, and those thoughts are not in line 
with Christ. I'm not taking those thoughts captive. And so sometimes I need other people to come in my life and say, this is not of God. What you're thinking is not right. And we all need that kind of correction in our life. But first of all, we need to deal with our own strongholds before we can help others with their strongholds. So Paul says, it's not about his opposition. It's about the work of the enemy. And as a minister of the gospel, his job is to dismantle the schemes of the enemy. And then finally, he says that how you fight the enemy is determined by context. And so that's kind of the answer to the question of, uh, that they're bringing against him, the charge they're bringing against him. Sometimes he approaches them with humility and gentleness, probably because he thought that they listened to the, the harsh letter that he sent. So he approaches them with humbleness and gentleness. Other times he approaches them with a more firm, harsh tone. He, he warns at some point he will come and punish those who remain disobedient. Jesus kind of gives us kind of a template for dealing with conflict uh, and the work of the enemy in other people's lives in Matthew chapter 18. And it's very similar to what Paul says. It says in Matthew 18, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. So Jesus says the context determines how we approach a conflict or the work of the enemy in someone else's life. Sadly, sometimes in the church, you know, we get that turned around. Sometimes uh, when we're dealing with a conflict or the work of the enemy in someone else's life, we start with telling other people. We tell other people. And then from there, maybe we tell the church more and more people. Maybe we even tell the pastor. And then finally after that, maybe we tell the person who did something wrong. And that should never be. But the reason that we do that is because, I think it's because we don't like confrontation. We don't like confrontation. It's easier to go other routes than to confront someone. But here's the reality. To fight for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes it requires being confrontational. Sometimes it requires gentleness, humility. Always it should always be done in love and grace. But sometimes it requires being confrontational. Let's say uh, I have a friend who's a doctor. And uh, we take the kids, we take my kids and his kids to a, a pool party. And as we're at the pool party, he sees this lesion on my arm. And he's 98% sure that this lesion is cancer. But he doesn't tell me. And the reason he doesn't tell me is he thinks to himself, well, if I tell him he's probably got cancer, he's probably going to be sad. He's not going to be happy about that. And after all, I'm not his doctor. So I don't want him to think that I'm prying into his business by telling him this. And hey, there's like a 1%, 2% chance that I'm wrong. Maybe it's not cancer. And so he doesn't tell me. It's not my friend. If he's not willing to tell me something that could literally kill me, he's not truly my friend. The same thing is true in the body of Christ. We need to be willing to say the hard things. To save someone from the pain of sin. And so Paul says we need to fight the enemy 
and it, it, that our approach can differ based upon the context. Sometimes it's kind, gentle. Other times it's confrontational. So in closing, kind of to put this all together and to kind of to apply it to us, we see that there's a battle going on. There's a spiritual war that's going on. And the scriptures tell us, Peter tells us, that the enemy is like a roaring lion, and he's searching for someone to devour. But James tells us something else too. He says, resist, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, armed with God's word and the security of who we are in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we fight against the work of the enemy in our lives as well as the lives of those around us. There's a lady by the name of Lexi Fowler, and she's a uh, sheep rancher in the West, I think in Montana. And uh, she's always dealing with this problem of coyotes uh, killing her sheep. And so she's tried everything to protect her sheep. Uh, she's tried these kind of odors that are supposed to repel the coyotes. She's tried these kind of decoy coyotes to scare them away. She's tried electric, electric fences. Uh, she's even slept with the, the little lambs. As, uh, and uh, despite all of her best efforts, every year she was losing about 50 or more sheep to these coyotes. But she noticed something that was very interesting about another animal, the llama. I mean, we don't think of llamas as being very smart necessarily, but these llamas did something that made a lot of sense in the context of coyotes. She says this, Llamas don't appear to be afraid of anything. When they see something, they put their head up and walk straight towards it. That is aggressive behavior as far as the coyote is concerned. And they won't have anything to do with that. Coyotes are opportunists, and llamas take that opportunity away. As believers in Christ, the enemy, Satan, is defeated foe. He can only win if we allow him to win. He can only win if we give in to lies rather than believing the truth of what God has spoken to us. And we need to stand up against him. Paul says, the context of how I deal with the work of the enemy, it kind of changes. My approach changes. But one thing that doesn't change is I'm always trying to stand up against the schemes of the evil one. And as believers in Christ, we need to do the same thing. So a few questions to leave us with as we close this today. First, where are the strongholds in your life? Where are the strongholds in your life? Notice I didn't say, do you have a stronghold in your life? I said, where are the strongholds? Because I believe each and every one of us have strongholds in our lives. Areas where we believe lies rather than the truth that God has spoken. Where are those strongholds in your life? And how can God's word free us from those strongholds? Second, is God calling you to help fight against the work of the enemy in someone else's life? Is God calling you to help someone else in their journey? To encourage them, to challenge them in their journey to fight against the work of the enemy? And finally, three, if that is so, how would you do that in a way that's faithful to the truth? but driven by a heart of love and bathed in grace. That's our calling today. Dealing with the strongholds in our hearts first, through the power of the Holy Spirit, applied, applying God's word, and helping others with the strongholds in their life, helping free them from the bondage that the enemy has put them in. Paul says this in Ephesians 6, 12-13. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand it in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to stand firm on the truth of God's word. And the power of the Holy Spirit who has the ability to overcome any stronghold. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your great and mighty power that can overwhelm any stronghold that we might have in our life. The things in our life that are maybe seem so unchangeable, that seem so natural, that through your Holy Spirit and your word, you can dismantle those strongholds. Lord, as we read your word, may it not just be confirming who we are, but may it be conforming us more and more into your image. And as we deal with the strongholds in our lives, when necessary and appropriate, help us to be able to deal with the strongholds in others' life, showing them grace, love, and mercy, but also pointing their way to the truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.